So we are going to be hanging out in Amos. Uh, so if you do have Bibles, pull those out. I wrote down, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 764. I did that for you. Uh, so we're going to read out of Amos chapter 5, give you a little cheater, I don't know, preview of what we're coming into. And then I'm actually going to read out of the book of Revelation, which should be nice and fresh for you guys, considering we just finished that. Uh, so give ear to God's word as I read Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21. This is, it says, I hate, meaning God, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up, it sucketh your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And then coming out of Revelations chapter 3, verses four, starting at 14, it says this, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reproof and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and him with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So our readings here might give you kind of an insight on what's actually going to happen throughout the book of Amos. If you guys are recalling one of the sermons Pastor Jeff preached on the churches, and you can remember Laodicea, that the church of Laodicea was beautiful. It had tons of money. Like, it was the church you wanted to go to because it had all of the things, but it didn't have Jesus. So from the outside, this church looked like it was doing everything it needed to do. All of the programs were ran perfectly, but they were ran for themselves. And we see in Amos... As he calls out, he says, you guys are bringing me sacrifices, and you're doing all of this stuff, and I will reject all of it. I want nothing to do with it. Humanity is broken the same 4,000 years ago as it is today. And so as we look at Amos and we see this call to correct our worship, to correct what we're doing, and to take vision uh, that is kind of what I hope for us to pull out of this book of Amos. Uh, so real quick timeline, you can see Amos is, uh, they're, they're saying somewhere between 792 and 740 BC. That's actually coming out of Amos chapter 1, verse 1, 
where it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we get a really good, uh, this is a definitely when Amos was talking. Some of the other books are kind of guesstimated based on things that are said. This one's pretty well set up. This is our timeline right here. So we are just probably 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years away from Assyria coming in and destroying the northern kingdom, destroying Israel. So that's our timeline. Amos will be essentially the last prophet to warn because Hosea is going to come in and it's going to happen. So Amos is kind of the last moment for this kingdom to, to, to right themselves. And so you can see in um, 920 is when the, the, the kingdom split. So uh, Solomon's son makes a really dumb decision, and the ten tribes get really mad, and they, they leave, and they make their own king, who's oddly enough, guess what his name is? You're right, Jeroboam. I, you guys are on it. Um, so I want to read just kind of to give us a setting, because what is happening in the time of Amos directly reflects Jeroboam the first. So we have Jeroboam the second. He's not like officially Jeroboam some, right? Like he's, he's kings down the way. He was just named after his great-great-granddaddy or whatever it happens to be. But I'm going to read out of 1 Kings uh, chapter 14 to kind of give us just a little bit of meat behind what is actually happening uh, in our context. So it says this. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction that Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash." So our king that we're talking about right now, Joe, 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 sorry, Jeroboam II, I was trying to mix those two together, Jeroboam II here, what has happened is Israel has made a really bad mistake. So give you a, a, a reference line. So Jeroboam I, this is what happens to Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, makes this big mistake. The uh, nation splits. They go find Jeroboam and say, hey, Jeroboam, come be our king. Jeroboam says, I like that's a good idea. Let me be your king. So he takes 10 tribes and walks away from Judah. Who, what is Judah? Where Jerusalem is, right? Where's Jerusalem? The point of worship. This is where the temple is. So all worship is centered in Jerusalem. You were to travel to Jerusalem to the temple to do all of your worship rites. This is what you had to do. So here's what Jeroboam does. He gets 10 tribes. He's got to think he's pretty good right now, right? He's got 10 of 12, and his first inkling, his first move of king is to say, I should choose something because if I let these people go back to Judah and worship, they may stay. So what he does is he makes a mere image, a fake worship. 
He creates his own temple, right? It says actually that he makes these golden calves. He creates this whole fake religion so that the people don't have to leave and go to Jerusalem. So when we read and it says that Jeroboam II did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam I, this is it. From the moment the first king of Israel stepped on stage, he led the entire nation into false worship. And king after king after king continued this on. In fact, now if you actually kind of go forward, this, this one in my notes just kind of hit me. If you talk about the woman at the well, and she asks Jesus, hey, so some people say you need to go here to worship. Some people say you need to go there to worship. This is what she's talking about. That at this point, all the way even up to Jesus, there's these two points that claim to be the spot that they're supposed to worship. So Israel has departed from God. They're doing their own worship rites. Everything is their own thing. They are under uh, tyranny from Syria. Not Assyria. They come in a minute. Syria is just constantly beating them up, right? And it says here that when Jeroboam II becomes king, God uses him to free them. How does he do that? Well, he actually gets connected with Assyria, and Assyria then like defeats everybody around them, and the king Jeroboam. So in this moment, as far as Israel is concerned, life is good. Life is good, because God has used Jeroboam II to free them from all of this pressure from the outside. So they've got money, things are lucrative, there's not this pressure, because they've made some kind of deal with this nation, Assyria, which... Uh, Spoiler alert, will be the nation that destroys them later, just so you know. But at the moment, God used Assyria and this king to bring about a bit of reprieve for the people of Israel. That God used all of this sinful things to bring about a peace and helping Israel. So that's our timeline. You guys with me there? Israel's lucrative right now. They were under all this condemnation. Things are good. They have this new king. They're still doing their own worship rites. They're not going where they're supposed to go. And this new king comes. And so now we start. Ready? Bible's out. Oh, there's one more thing I didn't say, right? Like we're starting a new thing where after the sermon, we're going to take like two minutes for you to turn to your neighbor and just say, hey, this was my takeaway. And so make sure you have a notepad. I should have said that earlier, but make sure you have a notepad. Because after I'm done going on for probably three hours, I'm just kidding, not that long, maybe two and a half, we're going to just take two minutes to turn around and say, man, this is what I got. This is how I'm going to take this information and then apply it to my life. This is how I will apply what's happening. So notepads in the back, that's actually, I actually took one. There is a note card in the back of the chair if you didn't bring a notebook. Boom, bang, boom, says notes. <laughs> you are now equipped. And now I think I'm ready. Chapter 1, verse 1, we meet our prophet, Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Really quick, Tekoa is in Judah, so you know. Judah, Israel, they're like not friends. So God takes a shepherd from Judah and sends him into Israel to call out against him. That'll play out in a little bit later. But if we were to jump through, because we're going to jump through some, some chapters here, guys, just note, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, then chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 6, all start the same way. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of 
fill in the name, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Amorites, Moab, Judah, or Israel. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Amos' first chapter and a half are nothing but calls that God is basically saying. So this saying, I search really hard to say, okay, this is a crazy saying, right? Like anytime you see something repeated in the Bible, you should highlight it and go figure out what they're trying to say. Best definition I can get for this statement is that God is at the point where he will no longer allow sin to keep going. He's done. He says, look, I let you sin this far, but I'm done. I've been gracious, I've been slow to anger, I've been slow to punishment, but at this point, I am done. And so we get how many listed? We have Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, and Edom. Then we have the Amorites and the Moabites, essentially, and then we have Judah and Israel. So if we were to take a map, I have a map. I have a map. So the first four are literally making crosshairs. Isn't that cool? Right in the middle is Israel. So do you know who the Moabites and the Amorites are? Those are the descendants of Lot's kids. Cousins to Abraham's kids. So we see God take this picture, right? He goes, I'm going to hit the four corners around you. And then I'm going to bring it in. And I'm going to talk about your cousins. And then he zooms in just one more time. And he says, Judah and Israel. So God is saying, look, I'm done with all the sin. First off. Second off, he says, Judah, Israel, those who are to be called different are not. He's calling straight out, out of the gate, you guys are called to be different from the rest of the world, and you're not. You're doing everything that they're doing. So he says, I will not revoke the punishment. I will not revoke it. It's coming So we have this cool little visual that drives us back into Israel. I love how God does that. The Bible's so cool sometimes. He just kind of takes these these images, and when you can actually put them on paper, you're like, man, that is so cool. The crosshair thing I thought was like, yes, get them. So God gives us this visual focus right here we are. We are right here in the middle. And now let's read what God has against the nation of Israel. Because he does call out Judah, but it's just that one time. The remainder of the book is focused at Israel, not Judah. So I don't want to get us lost on Judah. They were messed up too, but we're going to talk about Israel. So chapter 2, starting at verse 6, we're going to go to 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample on the head of the poor and the dust of the earth and turn aside from the way of the afflicted, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So we have basically seven um, call-outs here. We have the abuse of the righteous. So those who want to do right and say, hey, you shouldn't do that, they're abusing the righteous, right? So the the prophets, every time they kill a prophet, that's abusing the righteous. The dismissal of the needy, the trampling of the poor, the ignoring 
of the afflicted, sexual deviance, false worship, and then it says drinking ill-gotten gain in God's holy house. God's house had things that did wine. Like it was normal. Wine was part of the, the ritual rites. But the wine they were using was gotten by ill-gotten gain. So they stole it or they robbed somebody of it. So they are bringing in false worship. So we not only have false, like full-on false worship, but we have worship that's done incorrectly. False on that side. So not only are they making pledges with other gods, but they're also bringing in all of this false religion inside of God's temple. Chapter 2, verse 8, all the way into chapter 3, verse 10, God continues to go on. He, he focuses in and focuses out, talking about one thing. You were called out to be different. That's what he says. He says, I made a covenant with you guys that you would be my people. And then if you were my people, I would bless you with all of these things. But you continue to run the other way. He goes, I did this, you did that. I did this, you did that. I did this, you did that. He says, all of these things, I've got all of this against you. I am not a God who just gave you a law and walked away. He says, I'm a God who gave you the law, lived with you, worked with you, constantly by you, sending you prophets, and yet you still ignored everything. Chapter 3 closes this way, in, starting in verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgression, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall from the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the house, houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end declares the Lord. I bring that up because um, in today's time, someone to own two houses, it's not super common, but it's not unheard of, right? So at this point in time, he's saying, I'm going to destroy your summer house and your winter house, which means we are definitely talking about a very lucrative time for the nation. The fact that they can have multiple houses and not just like multiple houses. And I'm not talking about like a two-room shack in one city and a two-room shack over here. We're talking about houses of ivory, right? Beautiful Big, glorious houses. He says what? The great houses shall be broken. So there's our, there's our proof in the pudding, right, that Israel is most definitely finding themselves in a very lucrative time. Life is good for them. Life is genuinely good. And so I want to take a moment and just sit in that narrative right there and just kind of look around, right? Because here's the thing. I think often we base our, our positioning or where we are with God and what we're doing and what we're supposed to be doing on what is happening around us, right? If we assume things are good, cool, then I must be doing right by Jesus. And that might not be the case. So a little note for you. Just because things on the outside seem prosperous does not mean God is blessing the circumstances. You may be on the verge of calling to order an indictment for your actions. So a reflection. Are we living a life that reflects the gospel? Because we're going to go on and we're going to see Israel was doing a whole lot of religion. We'll get to that in a minute. They were doing a whole lot of religion. 
Now, they were doing it wrong, mind you, and they get called out on that. But what was the indictments before all that? This is, you say to be mine, right? And yet you, you trample the poor. You don't care about the afflicted. You rob people. You're concerned about yourself. He says, you say you're mine. You're doing these religious acts, and yet your life looks nothing like it should. You look the same as Damascus. You look the same as every other nation around you. And so I think, this is for me too, I think a lot of times when I feel like life is going well, I think, man, I must be doing this whole Jesus thing well because God wouldn't bless me if I wasn't. Right? We just kind of, That's just a natural inclination. If things are bad, it's punishment. If things are good, well, then it's... Good job, John. You're doing things right, right? That's, that's just the way we think. But that's not always the case. See, Israel, and if you read the Old Testament, you will see this. Israel pretty much never, ever repents. So they always find themselves in God's um, judgment, and they just cry out in pain. They never say, we're sorry. They always cry out in pain. This hurts. And then God moves on their pain. And then he fixes them, and they're like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Oh, thank God. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to go back over here to our false worship. Thanks for that. That's what we're going to do. That's, this is what the Israel, Israelite does, right, over, over, over and over again. And, and I think a lot of times we can read that like, these guys are really dumb. But let's be honest. Do we not do the same thing? So there's a big reflection here that just because a season in life may seem peaceful, lucrative, and good, it does not mean it's a blessing from God. We may be one day away from an indictment being called on us. So Paul in Philippi actually says something very similar in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He tells them this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Paul says, we have to look like Jesus. Like if we say we believe this, if we say we worship the God of the Bible and we look nothing like him, how could we, how could we possibly do that? How? So, we cannot say we're God's if we're not living as we're called in God's. Now we jump into chapter 4. You guys ready? Look at that. We're almost halfway there, guys. Amos, all over Amos. Amos, Amos, Amos. I, I can't go outside of Amos. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to 5. It says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take, away, take you away with hooks. And even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiple trans multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I'm not sure if you got that. That was sarcasm. So here's our point. 
Israel is most definitely religious right now. It says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, multiply transgressions, bring your sacrifices when? Every morning. Every morning. These guys are getting up every morning, going and worshiping wrong. It says, then, give your free will offerings. I love this. Publish them. He goes, let everybody know what you're doing. That's the way to really get me to pay attention. Like, sometimes I miss your sacrifices, but when you publish them and let everybody else know of your sacrifices, those are, that helps me. That's what God's saying, right? That helps me when I miss that sacrifice you gave. But hearing that you told 15 people, I just kind of heard it in the murmurings at the water cooler. So now I know you gave that. So he says, well, do all of that, right? Cows of Bashan, <laughs> he's calling these people out, fat and lazy. You guys are fat and lazy. You're just doing your own thing, worshiping your own way. And then he warns of them being taken out by hooks. Does anybody have any idea what that means? So what they would do back in the day, if you were a slave, they would put a, a ring through your nose so that they could, I mean, <laughs> you got a ring in my nose, I'm following you right? So it was a sign of being a slave. They would put a ring through your nose and they would lead you by it. So when he says, you cows of Bashan, live in the life of luxury right now. Just wait, because they're going to come in and they're going to drag you away with a hook in your nose. And those of you who don't get taken in the first time, guess what? They're going to come back with an ill-gotten hook, a fish hook now, not even a nice one. You're not even going to get the pretty ring. You're going to get a fish hook. Meaning, no one's getting out of this. The entire nation, this isn't just the nation of these cities, the entire nation, God's coming. His condemnation is coming. He's appalled by their lifestyle. He's appalled by their worship. Their worship means nothing because it's all centered inward. So worship cannot just be actions. They just cannot be actions. We, we can't just assume that because we show up to church every Sunday that we're doing things correctly. Now, we can't not show up to church, right? Like, there's a command to be in church, so good job, guys. But just because we're here doesn't mean we're doing it right. Because if we come here and we can sit here and uh, the, the sermon hits us and, and we can walk away with like, yeah, I had that one, we might have a problem, Right? Like if we don't come in on Sunday morning, hear God's word, and God's word doesn't actually affect us, then we should probably do a little checking, a little soul searching. Why am I here? Am I here for me? Am I here that people might know everything I'm doing so that I can publish how great I am? Or am I here that I might make much of the name of Jesus? So a quick note on worship. Worship is not just made up of right actions, like being at church every Sunday, tithing each week. It must be accompanied by a humble and contrite heart, acts of worship, even if done correctly and aren't attached to true love of God, are detestable to him. So are your acts of worship connected to a heart for God? Are they? And now here's the thing. I don't think we should ever find ourselves in a season where we don't ask that question. This this should just be a self-reflection question we ask constantly. Because... We are creatures of habit, and we will just find ourselves in a groove. Trust me, ministry is the worst for this, because you serve in ministry, so of course I'm doing things for God. But sometimes you're not, right? 
And so this is a self-reflection question that we should, we should be constant. We should constantly be checking. Is my worship actually full of a heart for God? And along with worship done right, we say we don't get to decide how we worship God either, right? Jeroboam has ruined Israel because he decided how worship was going to look. Now, he, he made it look like the way God wanted it, but it's not the way God wanted it, right? So just because something seems right and good, just because something seems right and holy, doesn't mean it is. And so we don't get to dictate how we worship, but we need to constantly check our worship. There's a slippery, slippery slope when our worship is rooted in our feelings. I'm going to put that out there. This makes me feel good. This is how I feel. Now, we should feel when we worship. If, if we're worshiping and there's not some kind of feeling happening, again, we're probably at this first problem. But we love the idea of feelings, so sometimes we will let our feelings lead how we should worship or what worship looks like. And a lot of times, well, guess we're broken, so our feelings tend to be broken, and they tend to lead us astray, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. That's the scriptures. And so we must take God's word and our feelings, and here's the thing, our feelings must submit to God's word. It can't go this way. It must go this way. It must go this way, or we will find ourselves in a very similar thing. Okay, cool. So God changes the narrative again. I'm telling you, we got to go fast. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I gave you cleanliness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when you were there three months to the harvest. I would send rain to one city and send no rain to another. One field would have rain and one field which it did not have rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Many of your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees and your locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made your stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, as you were a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Guys, real quick. Meet your God, O Israel. Come on. Could you imagine hearing that? <laughs> no thanks. See, Israel had an opportunity to meet God at the mountain of Sinai. Moses says, come on, come meet God. They get to the mountain, and there's thunder and lightning and all this stuff that's going on, and they turn to each other, and they go, hey, Moses, how about you go up there, and you tell us what he says? You good with that, Moses? God says, I did all of these things for one purpose, right? That you would come back. God's long-suffering in this. God says, I, I, did, I, I, I made things hurt. And you just, you just kept running. 
I did all of these things that you would come back, and yet you just kept going. So he says, look, I, I, I brought hard times to you, right? They, they had no food, no water. They had uh, pestilence, which is like a plague, which means like a lot of sick people dying, right? All of this stuff is going on. And then he says, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, I plucked you out, right? So now he's talking about the saving of, from Jeroboam. He says, I did all of this pressure that should make you cry out to me, and it didn't. So then when the pressure got so much and it was so hard for you and I felt bad, I then saved you, and guess what you did? You didn't come back to me. He says, I put pressure. I released pressure. I saved you, and you just you want nothing to do with me, Israel. I can't get you to come back no matter what. Prepare to meet your God. And then he gives himself uh, attributes, right? He forms the mountains. He creates the wind. He declares to man what is his thought. He makes the morning darkness. He treads on the heights of the earth. All of these, like, okay, so you know, this is the God you're going to meet. Not that golden calf. Not that fish-headed looking dude. No, 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 no the one who creates the wind, the one who creates the mountain, the one who treads on top of the world, that guy, that God, that's who you're about to meet. He's got quite a case against Israel, does he not? He says, you're not living right, you're not worshiping right, and every attempt that I've done to bring you back, you've rejected it. You've rejected everything. So let's see how chapter 5 unfolds. Chapter 5 Starting at verse 1, we see God continue to warn. He goes, hear this word and take up over you. I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel. Forsaken in her land and none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left in the house of Israel. He says, O lament. Lament, be broken, because it is about to get ugly. It is about to get so ugly, you're going to fall, and there will be no one there to pick you up. No one there to pick you up. But then, God is gracious, and he's good. He's laid out his indictments against the people. They have nothing, right? There's no defense at this point. They can say nothing. Well, Lord, look what we... Nope. And then he says this. He says, there's a bit of a promise. Did you catch that? A hundred will go out, but ten will come. Right? Ten will go out, one will come back, or a thousand and a hundred, hundred and ten. Right? He's promising that for the nation of Israel anyways, there will be some left. Because he's made a promise that he wouldn't destroy it. But he offers a sacrifice. So this point in the letter is a shift narratively. In the, up to this point in the letter, God is talking to the nation as a whole. As a whole, this is what has gone on. This is what you're doing. This is how it's kind of happened. This is the, all the, the judgment that's coming on. Now there's a shift inward to the individual. So now he's speaking to, to Israel as a nation, but individually, because he's offering salvation for some, right? Chapter, uh, continue on, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 14, give us 
how to do that. It says, seek good and not evil that you may live. God is well aware that the nation of Israel is not going to turn. But God is not just concerned with the nation as a whole, but he's concerned with the nation as individuals. And so there's a shift in the narrative that's happening now. Now that there's no way for the nation to get out of this, he's now offering this way that people might find salvation. They might be saved. Verse 16 begins a list of woes, which I'm not going to get into because they're bad, but you can read them. He says this list of woes, and then God just one more time in verse 21 just to make it very clear to everybody listening that the worship acts they're trying to do to save themselves will not. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings from your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says this, your religion is not going to save you. Your acts, your sacrifices, all of these things you're doing here under the guise of religion will not save you, but what will? Righteousness flowing and justice. He says, you want to be saved? Start living like you're supposed to. What was the first indictment? You're doing all of this to the people. So stop. Be the nation that's supposed to look this way. He's like, you're already worshiping incorrectly anyways because you're not going to the temple like you're supposed to. You're not even having, uh, Levites aren't even doing the, 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 the rites at this point. Like nothing is right in your worship. Nothing at all. So, so, so turn your, your, your focus from, from accomplishing these things and, and come over here. Come over here and live this life and you will find salvation. Chapter 6 continues on with woes. Chapter 7, our prophet begins to get visions from God. First of uh, locusts destroying, then a a second one is a judgment of fire. Both of those, after God gives him this vision, he responds to God. And he says, O Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Then, it says, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord God. So the first two visions of destruction, Amos comes before God and says, please don't do this, Lord. They can't survive it. Third vision, though, we pick up in verse 7, and it says this. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of the people of Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. For those of you who don't know what a plumb line is, it's basically a string with a weight that you would put on a wall to make sure it was straight. So when they built a house back then, even now, you use a plumb line, yep, the wall is straight and true. It's good. And then what happens is later on, right, they would go back in and check and see if the wall was still true to plumb. And if if it was good enough, it would stay. If the wall was too crooked or whatever, guess what happened? They tore it down. So Amos sees this vision, and God's holding a plumb line. Now, first off, 
he sees God standing. The first two was God speaking. So there's already kind of a, a whole shift in narrative here. He sees God standing with a plumb line, right? He says, what do you see? I see a plumb line. He goes, well, what's a plumb line for, Amos? Well, that's how we make sure things are straight. He says, yes, I'm measuring my people. Because when I built them, they were straight. When I built this nation, they were straight. And so I'm coming back to check on them. And he says, they're so far out of plumb. They're worthless. This wall cannot stand. This wall can hold nothing. I will never walk by this wall again. I'm going to destroy this wall. It's done. It's gone. So I want to freeze here for a moment uh, for a reason. Uh, Because I want to talk about the fact that right now, our next section, Amos is going to get his first response. So we are seven chapters in of just words going to the nation And we're about to get our first response from the hearers. And I want to take a moment because last week we we read about Jonah, right? And so I feel like there's a really good opportunity for us to do a little compare and contrasting of our prophet stories here. So real quick, Jonah went and called out against a nation who was not God's people, right? Nineveh wasn't God's people. Jonah went to people who are not set apart as God people, a people without the law, without worship rights, and without all the messengers that God has sent. Amos is speaking to God's people who have had the law, who have had the worship rights, and many prophets and God to guide them. They have experienced the power of God. Jonah speaks seven words to his audience, right? The entire book of Jonah is about him And his rebellion, the actual message to the hearers is seven words. God's going to destroy you. (laughs) Ha ha. Right? Amos has a seven chapters in. Seven words. Seven chapters. Jonah's audience responded instantly with lament and did so with no offer of salvation. Right? Nineveh heard, you're going to be destroyed. And they said, oh, wait a minute. They stopped everything, put on sackcloth. Nobody eats. We're just going to do this in hopes that God might relent. Amos, on the other hand, they've been offered salvation over and over and over again. So Nineveh, a people not gods, not set apart, seven words they respond in repentance. What do you say we see what Israel said? Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go and flee away from the land, or sorry, to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Isaiah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the way of the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You shall die in an unclean land, and Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. So a couple things. First off, the first person to engage our prophet was not just a member of Israel, but a priest. Which means, right, a priest should be like, hey, prophet, cool, we're on the same team. But instead, he says, hey, Amos, look, man, we're good. We don't need your prophecies here. He says, go to Judah. Because if you prophesy this in Judah, they'll pay you. Judah would love to hear about this prophecy of all of this stuff going to happen to us. He says, but here, we don't want to hear it, man. We don't want to hear it. See, this is the king's house. This is where things are good. This is where we are all good. He says, I need you to go away. Nineveh, seven words, repentance. Israel, seven chapters, and rebellion. And rebellion. And there's a moment there, there's, Nineveh is hearing of this God for the first time, right? And a lot of times that's, that's what happens, right? When we've never met Jesus and we meet Jesus, it's a big transition. It happens overnight. What often happens, though, is when we find ourselves, maybe we are first, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation Christian, right? A lot of times we can get this mentality like, yeah, I know that stuff. Yeah, I've heard that story. Yeah, I already know that. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, it's cool. I don't need that. We, we find ourselves getting dull to the word of God. Because we just kind of assume, and we already got it all figured out. I, I know the story of Jonah. I know the story of Amos. Israel's crazy. I'd never be like that. You should see how many Bibles I own. And they're highlighted. Right? And so what, what, what can happen, what can often happen is we, we get so caught up in our, our, our heritage and the fact that we think we know all of this that we don't allow it to change us anymore. And we just live life like the Bible is just a bunch of cool stories, you know, that the church is about all the cool events we get to do, like Wednesday nights, cheap plug there. Right, but, but this is what's happening to the people of Israel, right? They've got generations and generations and generations. They're actually, when they say Gilgal, do you know what happens in Gilgal? So when Joshua brought them over the Jordan, he split the Jordan just like the Red Sea, and he was told to pull 12 stones out of the middle of the, of the Jordan and put them on the side of the Jordan so that when they would go to get water and their kids would say, hey, why are there stones there? They could tell the story of how God split the Jordan. That's Gilgal. And God says, go there and transgress all the more, right? Saying, go and where I, I physically made sure you had something to tell your kids about, about the work God's done on your behalf, and you haven't. This, this is why th- there's been such a push that we do so much life with our kids. Like, we want to we we show that God's word affects us today, and it will in 30 years. And we never get to a point where we know the gospel enough. We never get to a point where the gospel has changed us enough. If we come on Sunday morning and we leave 
the same. We need to check ourselves. Now, a sermon may not be the most mind-blowing sermon that you've ever heard in your life, right? But one of my favorite things to do at the church I was at uh, prior, I had a buddy of mine. He would show up uh, Sunday morning early, and he would come, and he always would come in my office. like, you need anything, Pastor? I'm like, no, I'm good. And he's like, all right, cool. And then he would sit down. Right? Like, I'm trying to get ready, yo. Like, I'm bivocational. I'm, I'm testing my notes until I walk on the stage. And I'm like, type in, and he just sits down. I'm like, oh, we're doing this again. Cool. And he would literally just talk about what God's doing. He'd be like, man, Lord's good, right? I said, yeah, Lord's good, man. Lord's good. And we would just have like this 25-minute, like, locker room, hype-up session of how good Jesus is. And I would walk away with notes unfinished every Sunday. But the most encouraging part of my week was just that. Like, he didn't give me any new theological thing. I was like, I never thought of that. Right? Like, oftentimes, like, he would. Sometimes he'd be like, hey, dude, I was reading this. I was like, oh, dude, that's a pretty good, I, I like that input. Other times, though, it was literally like, man, look what God did. Hoo-hoo. And we would get hopped up, right? That should be happening Sunday mornings. We should be here. That's why we're talking about turning around and sharing our one takeaway. Like, we should be able to just hop each other up, like locker room. Man, man, guess what? Monday comes, guys. Traffic comes. Work comes. Your neighbor comes. Life comes Monday. The more we can get hopped up here, the farther we can run through the week. So we should never find ourselves at a point where we feel like we have it all figured out. So at this point, If you were Israel, what hope do you have? There's not been much hope given at this point, right? We're eight chapters into this, and it's been damnation and destruction and calling out for your mistakes. So what hope can be found? Well, you might not know this, but it's the same hope that we have. See, our prophet has called out the sins of the nation. He's called out the sins of God's people. He's called out their false worship. He's called out for repentance. He's shared visions of what God is going to do against the sinner. And then he closes his words with a promise. Chapter 9, verse 11 to the end. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David, that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as the day of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant a vineyard and drink their wine, and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruits. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Their hope is the gospel. Who is the one that will be raised up, the booth of David that will be raised up? Jesus. Who are those that may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations called by his name? Us. It's us. Israel's only hope 
is the gospel. It's the coming of Jesus. Jesus, the one who would repair the booth of David. Jesus, the one who saves all of those called by God. And so I ask this. If you find yourself this morning unsure about all of this, just ask. Let us tell you. Let us tell you about this Jesus that is life-changing. This Jesus that is hope. This Jesus that empowers us in all things, in all things. If you don't know where you stand, ask. Let us share. If maybe you're new to this whole faith thing, you know, new to this whole idea of living a life like Christ, I want you to be encouraged. For you have the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of God which is strong enough to melt mountains, and so it is strong enough to sanctify you. God's Holy Spirit will finish the work. Trust Him. Walk and trust Him. Maybe you've done church for years. Maybe you're a second, third, or fourth, or even more generational Christian. Heed the warnings found here. Never stop pursuing Christ. Never assume you have it all figured out. Work that salvation out with fear and trembling. Break the bad habits of those before us. Semper reformata, meaning the church is reforming or is reformed and always reforming to the word of God. Never stop chasing God's word. Read it again and again and again. All of my young ones, know that God is not only doing things on behalf of your parents. But God is working and making things happen for you. You are as important to Jesus as any one of us adults. And we need you to be the example of childlike faith. We need you guys to encourage our broken faith. We are old and weak. And we need you guys. Be our encouragement. Be better than we could ever be. Because it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, Jesus is our only hope. Amen? Let's pray.